Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, while there's no FDA-approved treatment for COVID-19, doctors at Northside Hospital and across the country are investigating one potential option. And so COVID-19 is another classic example of a very serious virus infection that's potentially life-threatening. And if we can give people convalescent plasma, we believe, it's not yet been proven in controlled trials, but we believe that will abrogate the severity and life-threatening complications associated with the uh, infections. That conversation coming up in just a moment, as well as an Atlanta resident shares his journey to recovery from the virus. But first, as of 9 a.m. today, there are 36,544 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,548. And there are 6,381 hospitalized. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health as of 9 a.m. today. And finally... Former Major League Baseball All-Star, General Manager, and Executive Bob Watson has died. He was 74 years old. Watson, who was nicknamed the Bull, made the All-Star team twice, once in 73 and 75. And Watson played with the Atlanta Braves in the early 1980s. In 1996, Watson became the first black general manager in baseball history to lead his team, then the New York Yankees, to a World Series title. In a statement on Twitter, Watson's son said his father passed after a long fight with kidney disease. This is Closer Look. Hey, I am Rose Scott, and as you know, this week we're asking for your financial support to help keep WABE going. We'll get right back to Closer Look, so stay with me. And please, if you can, help at wabe.org slash donate. Joining me now is WABE's Director of Radio and Television, John Haas. Your donation right now is vital because we get 84% of our funding from the Atlanta community. So please go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678 678- Five five three ninety ninety. And speaking of community, today we're partnering with the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. They're providing child care services for the kids of essential workers. So one donation from you becomes one week of learning materials for the child of a frontline worker. To help out, visit wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. So please give now at wabe.org slash donate or by calling 678 678- Five five three ninety ninety. Closer Look is always here for you every day. You know that. We try to bring you great interviews and allow you to connect to the rest of your Atlanta community. You rely on us, so now we're relying on you to make a donation. So please help us out at wabe.org slash donate. 
That's wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. We need your donation because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. Many of our listeners, well, they give about $15 a month, but please donate what you feel you can afford at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. We'll return to Closer Look in about 30 seconds. Thank you so much to everyone who's helped us today. Now it's time to hear from you. Call 678-553-9090. Or go to wabe.org slash donate. It only takes a couple minutes to give, and we're looking to bring in new members today. So if you've listened a while but haven't contributed, that's okay. Just jump on board now. We need your help during these challenging times. Join the tens of thousands of loyal listeners who are now WABE members. Call 678 553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp extended current restrictions on specific entertainment venues. I know this extension is difficult for many Georgia business owners in communities that have music venues. However, we believe that waiting a little bit longer will enhance health outcomes and give folks the opportunity to prepare for safe reopening in the near future. Translation, those establishments are still closed. However, Governor Kemp eased restrictions on child care facilities and summer camps with specific guidelines and even said, yes, public pools can open. So what's the outlook for the state moving forward? As we love to talk to every day, Sam Whitehead is our WABE health reporter and the host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? He joins me now to talk about all the news that happened this week and moving forward. Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Sure, Rose. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's begin, though, talking about numbers for a moment, Sam, because this week the governor's office I guess you say issued an apology after some of the data on the Georgia Department of Public Health website was slightly askew. I guess that's the best way to put it, huh? Yeah. So um, I, I tried to to brand this as Axis Gate on Twitter. So far, that hasn't stuck. Um, but what essentially happened was um, on a graph that the Georgia Department of Public Health has on their website, um, showing kind of new confirmed cases of COVID nineteen in counties with the most infections. What they did was the the x-axis, and that's kind of the the, the line on the bottom of the graph showing mm-hmm. kind of dates of, of when these cases were, were, were being reported. The State Department of Public Health didn't actually arrange those dates in chronological order. Rather, what it did was order those dates from left to right with the most cases on the left and the least cases on the right. So someone looking at that would potentially think, oh, cases are actually going down Ah. when that's not actually what was happening. And so the Department of Public Health did fix it, um, but only after some public cajoling on Twitter um, and even some state lawmakers wrote to the governor's office complaining about it. Well, Sam, I can imagine that could lead to a great deal of public mistrust in the information. You know, I don't think miss-ups like that necessarily help. Uh, the governor's office said this issue, how this information was displayed, was actually meant to make the data easier to ju- uh, to digest for your kind of everyday person. Um, but I think a much less generous interpretation of this is that this decision was made to make the data look as good as possible. Um, you know, for, for, for people who have been keeping an eye on the Georgia Department of Public Health's website, they might have noticed that the agency has been making a lot of changes 
changes to the data on this page. The thing that is honestly kind of even hard for me to keep track of is how they're changing the ways that this data is being displayed. Mm. Um, and it's certainly hard for me as a reporter to sometimes keep up with that. Um, and so I would have to imagine that the, the average person who's maybe just checking in on this periodically would have an even harder time um, really understanding what changes have been made. Um, changes like the change to this x-axis that we're talking about. And you know, Sam, speaking of data, there is a new analysis from the Morehouse School of Medicine, which found that Georgia counties with a higher percentage of black residents have a higher rate of COVID-19, which may not be surprising given all the data that's been coming out now nationwide in terms of that. But are we starting to get a clearer picture of how all this is disproportionately affecting communities of color? You know, I think it's important to say that there's a lot of data we still don't have, uh, but certainly based on the data that that we do, um, and even though a lot of this data is is preliminary, um, it does speak to a, kind of a, a troubling pattern. I had this kind of explained to me this way. This new coronavirus is totally new to humans, as in like before late last year, everyone was equally kind of our bodies, nobody's body had been exposed to this thing. And so what we've been seeing in this short period of time is that people of color are actually like more likely to get sick here and that the disproportionate burden of this illness um, is actually among racial and ethnic minority groups. So this Morehouse School of Medicine study is just further reinforcing this idea that even though this virus is an equal opportunity virus, everyone mm -hmm. is equally susceptible. COVID-19 really doesn't seem to be an equal opportunity disease when we look at really who is getting sick and, and the kind of outcomes they're seeing. And Sam, at the same time, out of Hall County, the city of Gainesville has popped up as a hot spot, and this is largely affecting the area's Latino community. Yeah, the big concern there, um, Gainesville and Hall County is the location of, of a number of pretty large poultry plants. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we've seen big outbreaks of COVID-19 in meat processing plants and in other parts of the country. Um, Hall County, a very large Hispanic population, um, and a number of those people work at these plants, um, along with immigrants from other parts of the world. And so we have seen in the last few weeks uh, a spike of cases there that, that Governor Kemp said earlier this week does seem to be slowing down. Uh, but the, the real issue is that, you know, numbers that we're getting from the last few weeks are always pretty variable. So it's it's really kind of hard to say how much things have changed there recently um, because it does take some time for us to really get a true picture of, of, of what the situation looks like. Do we know if the state plans any extra efforts to curb the outbreak there? I, I know at the time of our conversation, Governor Kemp is supposed to be in Gainesville. Yeah, he's up there touring um, one of these poultry plants as well as a kind of pop-up um, emergency room that the state has deployed to Gainesville um, with, uh, I think, 20-something beds to help with uh, additional capacity. Um, so, you know, a lot of the effort the state seems to be taking there is messaging. Uh, the governor has kind of tasked Georgia's insurance commissioner, John King, um, who is the state's first Hispanic statewide official, with really kind of leading up this effort. Um, the real priority seems to be to, you know, communicate to the Hispanic community that, hey, this is something you should take seriously, and, and here are the resources that you can avail yourself of to keep yourself safe. Meanwhile, earlier in the week, Governor Kemp made the decision to reinstate or extend the restrictions on bars and music venues, as I played a clip earlier. Are you hearing some criticism from those people that own those establishments saying, hey, what about us? 
Well, you know, I think the the tape you played at the top of our conversation uh, kind of gets to that specifically. You know, Kemp, Kemp said, hey, he kind of addressed, uh, tried to get out ahead of potential disappointment that people might have here. Um, I mean, I, I think with with this announcement, uh, which he made on Tuesday, um, the, the cat kind of got out of the bag. We kind of knew the news. We had seen it reported that this was going to be the decision before um, the governor made it. I mean, I, I would say, I don't know about you, Rose, but most bars uh, and concerts that I've ever been to can get pretty packed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, it you know, it seems that those would be a great place for the virus to spread. Um, you know, but I also understand if you're an owner of a bar um, and you can see, you know, you're seeing restaurants in your neighborhood opening up, um, maybe that's, you know, what's the real difference between a bar and a restaurant um, when there are restrictions on restaurants to allow them to open. Um, you know, I would think an, an owner of that establishment would, would wonder, well, why can't we ha open with those same restrictions too? Well, and um, also with child care facilities and summer camps and public pools. Sure. You know, and so, um, I, you know, I am not inside the governor's brain and I can't, you know, I don't know necessarily why this is the, the decision that that is being made. Um, but, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, he he did kind of the, the the thing he said is that, you know, bars and music venues should really take this additional time uh, that they will be closed to really think about what they can do to open up and, 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 and open up safely. Um, and certainly it seems as the governor does allow those kinds of spaces to open up, the state will have, you know, pretty strict rules about what that reopening looks like. Now, Sam, I'm I'm an old head, as they say. So I guess the days of mosh pits, are they gone? Pretty much? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you're not a mosh pit guy, are you, Sam? No, no, that's not really my scene. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, Sam, at the same press conference earlier this week, the governor also mentioned something else in terms of the possibility of a second wave of cases. Many have warned of a second wave and asked if we are willing to change course if conditions decline. Let me be clear. We will continue to track the numbers and continue to heed Dr. Toomey's advice. We will take whatever action is necessary to protect the lives and the livelihoods of all Georgians. How likely is this based on those public health experts you've already spoken to? Yeah, this is the kind of uh, rolling question is, um, when is this potential second wave gonna happen? Is it gonna happen at all? For, for me, I think about the fact that even at this point, though we've seen lots of people, it seems, get sick, there's still a vast majority of all of us who have not been exposed to this virus mm -hmm. based on the, the data we have now. And what that says to me, and this is the argument from public health experts I've spoken with, is that there is this potential for a second wave or even a third wave or even, even more waves than that. That um, really kind of all depends on what we do to potentially keep those waves from happening. That's something as simple as, you know, are people wearing masks? Are people following good hand hygiene? Are people, you know, minimizing gathering in, 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 in groups? And, and those all seem to be things that really could keep this second wave or other wave from happening um, until we, we get a vaccine. So, Sam, if we do experience a second wave of cases, do we have the capacity to accommodate new patients? 
that's a great question. And there was actually some interesting reporting on that that happened this week from the Center for Public Integrity. That organization got their hands on an internal document from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that showed officials there actually had concerns about Georgia's ability to handle a potential surge in COVID-19 patients. Um, what this document found is that, you know, not only a significant portion of the state's critical care beds, like the beds for the sickest people, were were full, um, but that, you know, the, here we had federal officials really saying, can Georgia handle this? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the governor um, in his office tends to kind of say, hey, as we've opened up, we're making this decision to open up based on our expanded capacity to help people that might get sick. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're seeing the governor maybe with one message and then federal officials, at least behind closed doors, uh, maybe expressing a little bit more concern than than even they are publicly. Uh, Sam, as we wrap up, anything else that caught your attention this week? You know, Rose, this is this is something that we're still digging into a little bit, but we actually had some pretty interesting news uh, from the Food and Drug Administration this morning. What they are doing is uh, taking kind of a second look at one of these uh, COVID-19 rapid tests. So these are tests that would mm -hmm. tell someone kind of very quickly return a quick result on, uh, you know, tell them whether or not they're sick. And this this is a test that seems to be deployed at a few spots here in Metro Atlanta. Um, you know, this seems to be the test uh, that is being used at this rapid test site set up by CBS here at Georgia Tech. Is that the Abbott? Um, the, this is the Abbott test. Okay. Yeah. And then um, the, uh, the governor's office, too, earlier had promoted that this was the specific test being used at a site in Alpharetta. Um, and so, you know, these are preliminary results that, that showed that this rapid test was potentially sending back a lot of false negatives. Mm -hmm. So telling people that they weren't sick when actually they were. Um, and that can be very concerning if you're trying uh, to actually find who is sick. And so for me, that's something I'm going to keep watching because with testing and with a lot of the interventions that are being rolled out to fight this pandemic, a lot of that is being done very quickly mm -hmm. um, and, and, and without the same kind of rigorous review process that we would see from federal agencies were we not in a pandemic time. Um, so that is something that has kind of just popped up today that FDA says it's going to look at further. But I think it's kind of this, this note of caution that because things are moving so quickly to try to fight this pandemic, that, that, that sometimes a test or an intervention might be put out there uh, mm -hmm. before it's before it's truly ready. And that is not a good thing. Sam Whitehead is WABE's health reporter and the host of the podcast. Did you wash your hands? Sam, as always, I appreciate you taking the time and our listeners do as well. Sure, Rose. Thanks for having me. Scott, we're fundraising today because we need your help. We only do this a couple of times a year, and we do it because there's no better way to help pay for shows like Closer Look. So please go to wabe.org slash donate. And joining me is John Haas, WABE's director of radio and television. That's wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Today, WABE is partnering with the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. They're providing child care services for the kids of essential workers. And for every donation we get today, we'll provide one week of learning materials for the child of a frontline worker. So please give at wabe.org slash donate or call 678 
553-9090. That's wabe.org slash donate. And thanks to all the listeners who've already donated to WABE, including Dr. Salpi Adrani in Johns Creek. He says, I'm proud to be a Cornerstone supporter of the vital work that WABE does to bring us factual news from around the world. WABE is my daily companion. The quality of my life would be much diminished without all the information of joy I get by being a listener. Well, I concur with that. Thank you so much. Your support, Dr. Adrani, really means a lot. And Rose, we know everyone's not in a position to donate during these challenging times, but we hope others can step in. So if you're able to make a contribution of $1,200 or more, you can also become a Cornerstone member. It allows you to special access the WABE events, and you'll make a big impact on the quality of programming for our community. Just go to wabe.org slash donate. The Cornerstone membership level breaks down to $100 a month. So help us, if you can, by calling 678 678- Five five three ninety ninety, or go to wabe.org slash donate. Don't worry, we're going to get you back to Closer Look in just a moment. But please go online and donate right now at wabe.org slash donate. It only takes a couple of minutes to give, and the average gift from listeners like you is about $15 a month. But give what you can afford. Just go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678 553 9090. And as always, thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. No drug or antiviral treatment for COVID-19 has yet been approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration. However, there is a potential treatment that's promising. It's called convalescent plasma donation. And it's also been called, quote, liquid gold. Well, what is it and how does it work? We'll learn in a moment. I'm proud to welcome back to the program Dr. Kent Holland, Medical Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program at Northside Hospital, and Dominic Piccinini, an Atlanta resident who recently recovered from COVID-19 and chose to donate his plasma. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Holland, let me start with you. As a medical professional and obviously someone who's treated patients with the coronavirus, I want to ask through your lens, what's been so complexing about the virus and the COVID-19 disease? Well, obviously there are many things about this disease that result in us essentially being overwhelmed as a nation as well as the healthcare service providers. But I think what's been very daunting about the illness is how contagious it is, Mm -hmm. how rapidly it's spread through communities. And even though we thought we were ahead of the game when it came to the United States, it had already spread pretty extensively in the New York area, obviously parts of the West Coast, like Washington State, and just became, we were unable to contain it. Mm -hmm. And we, we certainly saw what happened in Italy with thousands and thousands of people becoming very sick and dying from it. We saw what happened in Wuhan, China, and 
I don't think we've seen anything quite like this, certainly not in my lifetime. Mm. Dominic, as much as you'd like to share, can you recall for our listeners the moment you knew something just wasn't quite right, you weren't feeling well, and what symptoms did you experience? Yeah, actually my wife, who never really got tested, she was not feeling well. And we were on vacation, as a matter of fact, in Florida, and we were supposed to fly home and we drove. So I drove in the car, I drove the car and she was passenger. And she got home and she had the fever and body aches and all that. And so we're like, you must have it. But she never got tested. And literally it was seven days later that I started feeling similar symptoms. So fever, it wasn't, wasn't a severe fever, probably a high 90 fever. And it happened usually in the evenings for some reason. It was always, I was always fine during the day. I'm working from home because we had already shut down the office. I'm, I'm already working from home and I would be, feel fine during the day and then have dinner. And then right after that, I had a fever and I could take extra strength Tylenol, go to bed, wake up, feel better. And that went on for about four days. Mm-hmm. And then I remember it was like Sunday night and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm really not feeling well. And then all day Monday was one Tylenol after another, you know, every four, four or five hours I'm taking Tylenol. That Monday night I went to bed early, like 7 p.m. I was just not feeling good. I was, I had the chills. Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday were really the only days that I had a whole lots of body aches, you know, my back, my hips, my head, I just had a lot of body ache. And then Tuesday that day, I remember talking to my wife, she started talking about this plasma, donating plasma. And she said, you can't do it unless you get a test. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I-, I just want to test to make sure that I have what I have. Cause I just been watching so much of the news where folks that have COVID or fever one day, ventilator the next day. So I was just, that made me nervous because it was the worst day that I had felt out of the seven. So a couple reasons why I went and got the test or else I probably wouldn't have gotten it, but glad I did because I'm able to do this. If I didn't get the test, I may not be able to help contribute to the cause. But Dominic, someone listening may say, well, you are going to get the test. You weren't feeling well. This was going on. Why so reluctant? Because I didn't feel like, I kept reading and hearing about, and my wife would feed me information, you know, what's going on at the hospitals. And it was at that point where it felt like, especially in New York, where there was just a panic. And I didn't want to be one of the people to bog down the hospital and go get a test. And it was really about, if you can't breathe, come in. If Mm -hmm. If you just have a fever, just work through it. So I didn't feel like I needed a test. And I never really had the shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. I just I just felt like I didn't need to bog down anyone if I could manage it through myself. But those last couple of days, I just got a little nervous that I could go from, you know, 101, 102 temperature to being on a ventilator. I, I'm fairly healthy. I didn't think I would get there, but it just made me nervous. How long ago was that, Dominic? March 31st, got the test a couple of days later, which was about April 3rd. What went through your mind when you heard? You know, it was a sense of relief. I. I sort of knew I had it. My wife didn't get tested. So now we put two and two together. She probably had it. But after that day that I got my test, I started to feel better. And that's when she started looking into the fact of, you know, it's a good thing that you've got the test because now you can go do things with it. 
One, the assumption is you're immune. Two, that you're able to do a, a plasma donation, which could help other people that are in a lot worse shape than I was. So, Dr. Holland, let me bring you back into the conversation. Uh, something that Dominic just said, now that he has contracted the virus and he's recovered from it, but he said something that now I'm immune to it. Do we know that that is the case once someone has contracted the virus, that they then become immune to the COVID-19 disease? The only reason Dominic got better was because his immune system cleared the virus. Mm -hmm. His immune system wasn't working, the virus would stay with him. And one of the ways our immune system clears the virus is by creating what are called antibodies. And antibodies are a protein that's made that specifically targets the virus to neutralize it or to kill it. And so we believe most people will create antibodies after they're infected with the COVID infection, assuming they otherwise are what's called immunocompetent. They're not, say, a patient with a severe immune deficiency like mm -hmm. HIV disease or say they're one of our transplant patients, that they should be able to clear the virus over time. And then these antibodies can persist for years, if not your lifetime, but we don't know how long it'll last right now with COVID. Hmm. Let's talk about then how this process works in, in the best way that you can describe this for our listeners and a public radio host. <laughs> so... Dominic says, you know what, I'm going to donate my plasma. I'm going to go to Northside Hospital. And then what? What's the process here? Well, the reason the plasma is so important is plasma is the liquid of the blood. It's, it's straw colored. Mm -hmm. And our proteins, nutrients, et cetera, are within the plasma. And antibodies are in the plasma. And we know for the last 100 years that people who have been infected by a virus can donate plasma, we call that convalescent plasma, which means they've convalesced, they've recovered from the infection, they now have antibodies, and those antibodies can be passively transferred to another person who has the infection and give them immediate immunity. So the moment those, that plasma is infused, they have the antibodies now to attack that virus. And this, was, this has been done for 100 years. It started off during, even before the Spanish flu, it was being done. But during the Spanish flu in 1917, 1918, several thousand people got convalescent plasma. It's been done to treat polio, measles, Ebola, hmm. virus outbreak that was in Africa. Mm -hmm. So this is, there's a long history of using convalescent plasma because in, in, these most of the virus infections we don't have treatments for and so COVID-19 is another classic example of a very serious virus infection that's potentially life-threatening and if we can give people convalescent plasma we believe it's not yet been proven in controlled trials but we believe that will abrogate the severity and life-threatening complications associated with the uh, infection especially for high-risk Mm -hmm. individuals or people who are very sick. So it's safe to say that Northside Hospital and there are other entities that are also involved in the testing of this. Through your lens, how long do you think it could take? How much more data is needed to get this procedure considered, I guess, an official treatment? Yes. Yeah, so right now the Food and Drug Administration, known as the FDA, has allowed 
plasma to be given to patients with COVID-19 under what's called investigational protocol. Mm -hmm. so the patient has to sign a consent form and they have to meet certain criteria to receive the plasma. So right now they have to have severe or critical disease, uh, but there's even talk about now giving it, uh, it's in fact being given now to people with high risk who have infection, who we know are likely to get very sick from it. There have been several thousand people now in the United States that have received the plasma. We've treated about 100 people here at Northside, which is one of the largest centers in, in Georgia, giving the plasma out. And we believe in the next few months we'll have some data to see how they're doing. Well, how long after Dominic had, in a sense, recovered from COVID-19 was then he eligible to donate his plasma? Or is it something that can be done right away? Is there a specific time period? after recovery? That's a great question. So a person with COVID-19 infection obviously has to get through their illness. And the FDA has stipulated that the donor who's interested in donating their plasma has to be at least two weeks removed from their last symptoms. And then we have to test them to confirm the COVID-19 virus has cleared, at least from their nasal passages. So we have to do a nasal swab. And if that's all okay, and they're otherwise a healthy donor, they otherwise meet all the criteria that you have to meet to donate blood, then they can donate. And the nice thing about plasma donation is we can actually freeze the plasma and store it for up to a year. Hmm. So we can stockpile the plasma. And the other nice thing about being a plasma donor is people can donate about every eight days uh, plasma donation. So they, it's not just a one-time thing. If they want to come back and donate again and again, then we're able to do that. A single COVID-19 survivor can provide, it looks like an ongoing supply of plasma, sounds like. One donation might be able to be converted into three or four bags of plasma. So we give one bag of plasma to a COVID-19 patient. So one donor could possibly give up to three or four bags of plasma per donation. So that allows us to expand the number of people who could benefit just from one donor. Dominic, when you hear that, that you are possibly gonna be helping save people's lives, man, what goes through your mind? It's, it's uh, the same thing I tell a lot of folks when they ask that question or, you know, how am I feeling? And I just keep saying, it's just the, it's just the right thing to do. If you think we've got a bunch of kids and I can't imagine that if one of my kids needed plasma and it wasn't available because someone wasn't donating, just it wouldn't happen. But I mean, you got to think about like it could save somebody's life. And so that's why I just keep saying it's just a, it's just the right thing to do. I feel good about it. I feel great about it. I'm not, you know, one of the heroes on the front line battling it every day, but anything I can do to help. You plan to donate more plasma, Dominic? Yeah, I think when I get back to Atlanta, we're not in Atlanta right now, but I did get the call from Northside to come back, so I'm going to make another appointment and do it. Now, the least they could do is give you a parking space. Dr. Holland, can you make that happen? Because I've been to Northside and parking there is... <laughs> That's a good question. So at the main campus at Northside, our donor center is literally inside the parking lot. We provide them a voucher to cover their parking costs, so there's no charge to them for parking. 
and we will treat them like a VIP person. <laughs> we really appreciate them coming to town. All of the workers on the front lines, as Dominic said, I think all of us can agree that they too are the VIPs. Dr. Holland, earlier when I asked you about what was complexing about the virus and the disease, and I want to ask you in terms of what do you hope comes out of this in terms of the future and how the medical world will be able to respond to something like this again? It's a multi-answered question because this virus is causing all types of complications beyond what we thought initially we were going to be dealing with. So it's an inflammatory virus. It causes tremendous amount of what's called cytokine release syndrome, uh, symptomatology in patients, which is why we think a lot of these patients become so ill and life-threatening illness. It increases the risk for blood clot formation, higher risk for strokes, organ failure, and there may be long-term complications that we're not even aware of could be neurologic or other effects. And certainly psychologically, it's having a huge impact, not only those being infected, but those around us that are worried we're going to become infected. It's been a very devastating pandemic, I think, even though we're still in the early phase of it here in the United States. In long term, we need to be better prepared on how we're going to handle these type of situations in the future. I think we have incredible people at the CDC that have devote their lives to figuring out how to handle pandemics. But I don't think any of us anticipated we would be hit with something so devastating, so rapidly as what we've experienced. And so I, I think next time we'll be much better prepared. And Dr. Holland, you all have been able to treat a number of patients. Have you noticed anything in terms of those who are receiving the plasma donations in terms of their recovery, if they have any pre-existing conditions, have you noticed anything in terms of maybe age or ethnicity or sex that stands out to you in terms of how folks are able to recover after receiving the plasma donation? Right now, we just have anecdotal data. And we're not at a point yet where we can collate all the information and come mm-hmm. up with a objective review that we expect will be available in another month or two or three as we get more patients further out. But at least anecdotally, we're seeing a lot of patients benefiting. The first patient who received the plasma here at Northside was on a ventilator. The intensive care physician caring for him called us and said this was the sickest patient he had taken care of up to that point in time and was not anticipating this patient was likely to survive. And we were in the process of mobilizing the plasma program and shortly thereafter had a unit of, of convalescent plasma to give this patient. And he survived and is now at the hospital and doing well. And he was an elderly patient. We've had several pregnant women who were very ill from the COVID-19. And as you're aware, when you're pregnant, you can't get medications frequently. So you can't get the, the malaria drug that certainly was sort of in vogue at that time, or remdesivir, which is the antiviral drug that was investigational and remains investigational, but looks promising. And they received the convalescent plasma, and I was at least told by their physicians that they improved significantly within days of receiving it. Hmm. Now, they might have anyways, but I'd like to believe that perhaps this was making a difference for them. Historically, we would expect it to, but again, we need to confirm that with objective data. And Dr. Holland, those who are receiving 
the plasma donation, because it is considered, in a sense, a clinical trial. So there's no cost yes. involved, correct? Correct. The plasma is provided free to the hospital and the patient. Dr. Kent Holland, Medical Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program at Northside Hospital. I was also joined by Dominic Piccinini, an Atlanta resident who recently recovered from COVID-19 and donated his plasma. Dominic, glad you're doing well. The family's doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time as well. And Dr. Holland, thank you and all of your fellow workers for doing what you all continue to do during this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Rose, very much. And again, for anyone who would like to come donate plasma, they can call us here at Northside or the Atlanta Blood Services and we will accommodate their schedule. All right, and we'll have a link to the information on our website as well. Thanks a lot, fellas, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you, Dominic, very much. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Holland, for all the good work you're doing. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and we're in our spring member drive. But please stay right here because it'll be very quick. Trust me. I can't say this any other way. WABE needs your help. That's because, listen to this, 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. So please give right now at wabe.org donate. Joining me is WABE's director of radio and television, John Haas. Thanks, Rose. And yes, you can give by calling 678-553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. Your financial support will help WABE continue its excellent facts-based news coverage, and you'll get reliable information on shows like Closer Look. But there's another reason to give now. Today, we're partnering with the YMCA of Metro Atlanta because it's providing childcare services to the kids of essential workers. And for every donation we get today, we'll provide one week of learning materials for the child of a frontline worker. So please give at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Again, that's wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. You rely on us week in and week out to enrich your mind and feed your curiosity. We're a civil, credible source of information. I believe that. It's why you're part of the WABE community. But are you a member? Have you done your part to help pay for the programming we provide? Because right now we do need your help. If you can, please give right now at wabe.org donate. Or call 678-553-9090. We can't do any of this without your support. Many listeners donate about $15 a month, but please give what you can at wabe.org donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. And thanks to everyone who's helped us so far today. But we need you too. Please give at 678-553-9090. And as always, thank you. If you donate online, you'll get to see all of the great thank you gifts we offer to members. And if you're already a sustaining member of WABE, please consider giving an additional gift. We need you, Atlanta. Please support us at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks. And before we say goodbye on this edition of Closer Look, here's what's coming up on Monday's program. A conversation with Morehouse School of Medicine President and Dean, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, about making the decision to hold the commencement ceremony online. 
and how the institution plans to phase in on-site instruction. So you, of all people, know what it feels like on graduation <laughs> day. So I know that decision to move the commencement ceremony online was, was difficult. It was difficult but necessary. Mm -hmm. Large gatherings couldn't, cannot occur right now. We are just not at a stage where we flatten the curve enough. And we as medical scientists, public health leaders, research scientists, we all understood that. So we really did not get a lot of pushback from our students. We, they were just disappointed like everyone. But we're going to celebrate them and it's going to be joyous. And how do you get John Legend? You know, there are some people in my organization who have, can pull strings, and I am just grateful that they're there. <laughs> but, you know, he's always been committed, though. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he, he, and both his, he and his wife are very committed to causes that really reflect their caring of the community. And so we said thank you, thank you, thank you to him. I wish it was going to be in person, though, because, you know, I like to see him in person, but whatever. <laughs> we'll, take it, we'll take it as we may. Take what you can get. You know, I've asked this question to many leaders of higher education, of, of institutions, about their leadership approach during this in terms of when they had to make a decision to shift classes online. Of course, you all being part of the AUC. Do your reflection, President Montgomery Rice, what stood out for you that might have been challenging or something that got you through making decisions through all of this? You know, I think the most important thing that has gotten us to this point is communication, 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 mm -hmm. transparency. The confidence to say we don't know, but we'll figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And I have had a town hall meeting every Monday for the last six weeks, I think, and then on Thursdays where we just answer questions. And I think that level of connectivity, I mean, we've had times that we've had 700 people on the Zoom, wow. right? And we have the chat room open and we're answering questions. And, you know, I like to laugh five times a day. And so sometimes I would create some things that made us laugh based on some of the questions that people were asking. But that communication has really, I think, connected us as a community as well. Being transparent. Hey, we all are scared. Mm -hmm. We all have got to get comfortable of what new norm is. But what I've tried to share with our community, we're going to define that new normalcy. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it together. And because the Morehouse School of Medicine is, and has always been called, a special institution because of the mission, and then as the students leave and the communities they're going to serve. So throwing that into the mix comes another decision, Dr. Montgomery Rice, and that is you all make a decision at some point to reopen on-site activity. Correct. What we have, and I say this all the time on the town hall and our digital engagements that, you know what, you can't actually educate and train medical students on Zoom. Mm -hmm. You can deliver some curriculum on Zoom, but what makes Morehouse School of Medicine special is what happens at the bedside. The cultural competence that we get to share and model for our students the culture humility in which our public health students go out into the community and they 
learn not just something about the community, but they learn something about themselves when they are asked to step back and listen and, and, and take a role that doesn't put them in front, but puts that community in front. Our researchers, yeah, you can see how to do an ELISA test on YouTube, but you don't get to make those mistakes and they be your mistakes. And then when you get it right, you have to learn that in the laboratory. So all of the places that are our laboratories involve people and interactions that are, require us to be connected. Now, of course, our clinical people, our residents, our clinical faculty who work at Grady and Chore and DeKalb and Wellstar, all of those, have, and the VA, of course, mm -hmm. have not stopped. They have been on the front line. But we do believe that it's time for us to now begin to have a phase return to campus. This phase return is going to serve as a model for how you create a safe environment in which to educate our students and continue to heal our patients and connect with our community. And then also to continue the discoveries that lead to the promise of science for those communities that we serve. So let's talk about then that phasing. What will it look like and when will it start? So it's already sort of started. Mm -hmm. It's three phases. The first part of it is really about stabilization, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing we had to do was to mitigate our short-term risk, stabilizing our operations. And our operations include not just our business continuity, but our academic virtual engagement. We were able to turn that on the dime because we've been preparing for this. Our business continuity, we still had opportunities to engage in research. So how could we keep those researchers safely in the laboratory, socially distancing, all of the things they need to do, but they were working on and still are working on some of the COVID-19 issues. Mm -hmm. We also had vendors that would be supplying our IT and all of those support mechanisms for academic virtual continuity. So we had to have our business continuity continuing. So we then set up in that first part, what we would call our command center. Mm -hmm. Our command center of people who looked at the resources that we currently had, what additional resources that we need. And then we started thinking about what would reopening look like, informed by science, informed by putting safety first. That's coming up on Monday's Closer Look. Morehouse School of Medicine President and Dean, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, she'll also reflect on the importance of the graduates as they enter into communities disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And she offers reflection on long-term consequences of the disease on specific communities. Join us Monday for that conversation. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We are fundraising today, and we do need your help. So please give what you can at wabe.org slash donate. And joining me right now is John Haas, WABE's director of radio and television. Your donation right now helps pay for all this critical news and information you get on WABE. So please call 678-553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. Today, we're partnering with the YMCA of Metro Atlanta because it's providing child care services to the kids of essential workers. And for every donation we get today, we'll provide one week of learning materials for the child of a frontline worker. So please give today at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. wabe.org slash donate or 678-553-9090. Folks like Adrienne Proeller in Atlanta. She writes, I'm making this donation in honor of Rose Scott, who covers Southwest Atlanta neighborhoods better than any other local media platform. And Adrienne, I really appreciate that. That means a lot. It really does. And it's very important. And that's why we do it. And we really appreciate your financial support. Because you also rely on WABE, we need to hear from you. So please give right now at wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. It's important that we hear from you right now because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. And think about it this way. The listeners who have given in the past have made it possible to hear Closer Look today. So we need you today to help fund future episodes. Many of our listeners are sustaining members and they donate about $15 every month. But please give what you can afford at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678 553-9090. I want to thank everyone who's donated so far. If you haven't had a chance yet, call 678-553-9090. It only takes a couple of minutes. And as always, thank you so much. You can also give at wabe.org slash donate. If you've never been a WABE member or your membership has lapsed, I'm talking to you right now. You know what amounts right for you, but $15 a month is the average gift. Just go to wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. And thanks. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.